This is the Mindbox podcast hosted by Claire Jacobs. Mindbox is a space to talk about our minds, mental health and neurodivergence, so we cover topics that can be of a sensitive or triggering nature. We will always highlight the topics we cover in each episode's show notes description. Please note, we're not medical experts, we're only experts of our own mental health and neurodivergent experiences. To find out more about the pod or to contact us, search for us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as MindVoxPod. everybody today I've got with me a lady called Sue Bordley she's an author teacher and mother to two teenage sons she has taught English at secondary school for 26 years whilst also writing novels for adults and teenagers she uses the pen name Jess Molyneux for some of her books including XYZ which aims to educate teenagers about sex and consent including the message that women should be treated as equals in relationships Surrounded by chiclet, where women are often depicted as stereotypical shopping-obsessed, wine-loving, looking for a man to depend on, Sue wanted to change that narrative. She chooses to empower women and girls through positive representation in literature. So female characters in her books are strong, sharp, funny and self-sufficient. I love it. As a young child, Sue's son was diagnosed with autism. And during this process, she identified with many of his traits. Sue is self-diagnosed autistic and aware of some of the stigma surrounding self-diagnosis. Her latest book features an autistic family based on her own experience of family life. Sue's come onto this pod to discuss parenting neurodivergent children, her self-diagnosis journey, and how she's trying to empower women and educate teenagers around consent and sex through books. How are you, Sue? Wow, I sound amazing. (laughs) It's great, great to be here. Good. Thank you very much for coming on. The first thing I want to talk to you about really is the books and, and the writing before I come into your own autism journey. But how long have you actually been writing books and what inspired you to first start writing? In terms of to sort of go to the beginning, I was a very keen writer as a child. I was always writing short stories and particularly kids love poetry, don't they? I was uh, very keen um, on writing poems and I entered a few competitions and, and won them can tell you one company's definition of a life uh, a year's supply of chocolate isn't the same as mine I wrote a song and won a uh, year's supply of chocolate and I won the Liverpool Libraries prize when I was about 14 and I really enjoyed writing songs and poems but then you become an adult life gets in the way and you just don't I mean I certainly didn't anyway as a young woman from Liverpool I just didn't think writing was the sort of thing I could do and so just life got in the way I carried on I went into teaching but the reason I came back to writing I carried it on low-key through my writing career very often if I was looking for what we call an exemplar piece for students I would write one myself if I wanted to demonstrate the skills I wanted the students to use in their creative writing, I would write a piece that contained, for example, if I wanted them to use metaphors and similes, I'd write a piece using them. If we were doing things like rhetorical questions or something to really grab the audience's attention, I'd write a piece because very often I couldn't find something similar out there. And it saved time to just write it myself rather than researching in the pre-internet days. But what really made me start to write a book was about seven years ago, I heard some teenage girls aged about 14-ish, 15-ish, and they were talking about reading a certain shady trilogy of books. And I brought it up with them and said, girls, I'm not sure that's the best thing for you to be reading. And they said, but you've got to understand we've got questions about sex. And I thought, well, okay, I understand that you do. But I wasn't sure that was the best place to look for the answers. What goes on in those books between consenting adults, absolutely fine, do what you like. But I didn't feel it was giving out the best messages to young teenage girls. So I thought, well, okay, if they're looking at stuff like that to try to get information about what relationships are like, but someone needs to write a book that is going to answer those questions but give out a more positive message. Now, I know when I've been a teenager... I was on the waiting list at the library for a copy of uh, Judy Bloom's Forever. I love and that I thought, book. I have that Yeah, still. that book. And I thought, well, <laughs> well, that was the book. You know, our generation or, you know, generations previously then looked to that book because mm. it was what they did it. And mm. so, you know, we were very curious about what they were doing. 
would be like. And mm. I thought someone needs to write something like that. And I to do my research. I went and got hold of a copy of Forever and I read through it and I thought, wow, it was relevant for its time. And I think it probably helped a lot of teenagers at its time. But if you even go back and look at it, the only advice she's given from any kind of health professional is contraception pill. There's nothing discussed about safe sex because I guess less was known about it. And it was less of a concern at the time when that book was written. But I thought, wow, I thought that would need to be addressed. And even then, she really all appeared to be worrying about, am I doing it right for him? You know, is it what he wants? Am I keeping him happy? And I thought, no, I think we need to really give a message to girls that you matter, what you're doing matters, and, you know, your happiness, you know, whether you consent or all of these things matter. So I began writing XYZ, and I deliberately wrote several sex scenes. You know, let's not dress it up. I wrote deliberately wrote many sex scenes in that book. So I thought, okay, if girls are turning to these books because they want to see what happens, or even... They're looking for what is referred to as spice in the literary world. They're looking for scenes like that to kind of get a bit interested. I thought, okay, those scenes are there. But, you know, I thought I'm going to portray them in a realistic way. And again, be very blunt with you, the first time she and her boyfriend attempt oral sex, she's like, oh, this isn't, you know, this is a bit weird. I don't know what's going on here. And she, you know, she has doubt. She is not sure if she's doing it right. But all of the time, I really stress that what she wants matters every bit as much as what he wants. And equally, there's one... One particular part in it where she's put a nice occasion together for him it's his birthday she's kind of set a scene she's really thinking you know she says tonight's the night anything you want i'm gonna give it a go and he says actually do you mind if we don't and she has to respect that but you know i said people of any gender deserve respect and their consent must be respected so i do put the sex scenes in but they mention the contraception the idea of consent if one of them isn't in the mood then that's the end of that and that's how it needs to be and they both care about each other. They listen to each other. And I think that's something that needs to be included. And the other thing I was very keen to put in with that book is the idea that as a young woman, she's passionate about her relationship with Alex, the boyfriend, but she still cares about things like passing her A-levels. She wants her qualifications. She wants to go somewhere with her life. There's a section where she's taken her driving test because these things matter to her. I, I really wanted to send the message to girls that, you know, sure, relationships are great, but don't make it the be-all and end-all in your life. You know, you've got to make sure whatever your ambitions are, you make sure that you are following what you want as well. Don't go down a path mm. of just what, you know, your partner might want. Yeah, that's really important. And I think, like you said, I, I loved the Forever book, but I imagine, yeah, if I read it now, I wouldn't. I'd probably be like, hmm, it's missing a few things here. But oh, when you were yeah. doing your research, because that, that, I can't remember when that one was written. Was that 80s? It was, I think it was written in the 70s. Yeah, because I read it in the 90s and I was like, this is great. But I didn't see anything else educational. But when you were doing your research to write yours, did you come across any other books that maybe no one had heard of that in more recent years was trying to do? At the time, not really. You know, there may have been some other sense, but I didn't really. That's why I thought, I thought you know, XYZ, certainly the time I published it, really was quite a unique book. Mm. There weren't really, I couldn't find them, any other books out there featuring a teenage relationship written about in detail. You know, mm. I will I will say I do write in detail about mm. their relationship and the fact that there are, you know, say there are sex scenes. But so while I do have an element of spice because I think that's what they're looking for, I did want to make it responsible. You know, there's a bit where they, they try to do it in the car and it doesn't really work out because it's a bit awkward. You know, I try to inject a bit of humour into it as well. Because this was the other thing about the trilogy that they were looking at. That's all. It's all millionaires in mansions. And I thought that's just not reality. I wanted to write about a couple of kids in a very ordinary, you know, they're not in a dreadful poverty, but they're certainly not rich either. They're just living in a very ordinary sort of existence. Uh, one one person did say, how on earth are they able to like sort of get so much time alone? And I do, I had, did write it into it that Zoe's mum was a nurse who did shifts. So very often she wasn't around in the evening. And uh, there's a point where Alex does mention about a previous girlfriend. He says, well, we only did it three times. Not everybody's got a mum who's out as often as yours. <laughs> you know, it's about like teenagers who, you know, they have to be constricted by times they can be alone, they can be together. And I wanted to make it very real because if teenagers were looking at romance books to get that kind of information, a lot of these romance books, it is, it's dead unrealistic. Are there that many women out there fantasizing about finding a billionaire? Why does it matter so much that he's rich? You yeah, know, I exactly. wanted, you know, 
my my two characters, Zoe and Alex, are a pair of six formers. Mm. You know, the six formers notoriously don't have a huge amount of money. There's a section in the book he takes her out for a day out, and it's done on a student's budget, and she absolutely loves it. And this is I wanted to really portray her as a girl who wasn't obsessed with his money. It was a real couple of kids in a real world because I thought of well, that book isn't out there. You know, there's lots of t- there was lots of teen fiction, but it was all you know your Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero these kids who lead live these incredibly unrealistic lives. Any film you see featuring teenagers, high school musicals, they were all beautiful, they were all perfect. You know, my kids weren't. I mean, of course, you know, she fancies him. She certainly thinks he's hot and, and you know, he's, he's good looking and everything. But, you know, they get the odd zit. They have, you know, they have rotten days. I really, really wanted to portray things as being dead normal. Mm. The first book I wrote under my real name was a book called Rescue Me. It was inspired by the Fontella Bass song, I was at my local swimming pool and the lifeguard was tapping his toes to the song on the radio, which was Rescue Me. And I thought, oh, I want you rescue me and his lifeguard. And I thought, I can do something with that. It's a nice, clean love story romance featuring a woman and a lifeguard. But he's not Baywatch. He works at the local pool. He's real. And that's what I really, really wanted to do. My books are very much about real people living real lives, um, you know, Glitz and glamour. I think there's enough of that. I just, I wanted to portray real, real people. Yeah, I can see it. I love the fact that with the women, they're all strong people. They're not dependent on men or just searching for love. There's there's elements to them that show you, you that's just one tiny area of, of who you need to be or who you want to be. One quote from a young, uh, young woman said, Alex shows you what you should look for in a man. And I thought, because he is, I painted him as a really kind of really nice, respectful young man who listens to her and I'm not sure not all young men are like that not all young women are a positive role model the way Zoe the the heroine is but I wanted to portray a positive example for young people and say look this is what you should be looking for in a relationship rather than that the the, the books you were reading which was this idea of you'll do everything I tell you and you know you'll be very well paid for it but it's all on my terms and I didn't want to I just didn't that's not the right message this isn't the message, you know. So I wanted to show two really positive, good young people because there are some wonderful young men out there. You know, some men are getting a really bad rap at the moment. So, and obviously, well, there's some men where it's incredibly well deserved. You know, with some of the cases we've seen in the news recently. But um, there are a lot of really positive young men out there, and I think we should show a positive example for these young men and say, look, this is how it ought. This is how it ought to be. And for those of you who are acting this way, we can see that. And did you have to do a lot of research to make sure you got it right? Because obviously, I don't know if you were trying to highlight a lot of different aspects of sex and, you know, making sure that it's the stuff that's got the latest advice in terms of, I don't know, infections and pregnancies. Did you have to do your research just carefully? Uh Well, I kind of 20 odd years in the classroom was a decent amount of research to be on. Uh, well, things like, for example, I will tell you one time I, again, over- overheard conversations tell you a hell of a lot because they don't think you're listening and it's but it's important where an overheard conversation where I had heard some students they were talking about Jenny did Jenny's pregnant you know and no my immediately like whoa whoa do I need to talk to the child protection officer in the school no I, I thought I'm justified listening in on this one and they went Jenny's pregnant you know she did it with Tom last night and she she felt a kicking in registration and I thought massive massive misinformation here and sure enough while I thought I need to have a word with that student's form tutor if the idea about doing it was true. I thought that's a that was a worry at that age. I thought that is a child protection concern. But I thought you can see then if she's saying she's pregnant, she did it last night, and she felt a kicking in registration. I thought there's, they, I thought the kids really, really don't know what's happening here. I wrote a section in X Y Z where they have an episode of failed contraception. They used condoms, but it fails, and so they go and get emergency contraception. And I wrote all that in the book. And yes, I had to research. I went to speak. I spoke to some nurses and I asked, you know, sort of, well, can you please really tell me everything about how emergency contraception, how a young person could get it, how how it takes effect, how it has to be used. And so I, you know, had to write, I wrote that into the book. So I wanted to give the message again to young people that if you do have failed contraception, you can do something about it and you don't have to end up with a baby because of failed contraception if that isn't what you want well that's really important and I think now as well as being a teacher and picking up on that stuff you are also a mum of two teenage boys have you 
used this these texts with them i mean if a parent's listening and not sure how to approach this stuff you know have you got advice of how they could approach it yeah parents may be interested in reading the text and then other parents will know their own children best and if they feel it's something appropriate for their older team then that's something that they could do with my own sons i am just open and truthful if they have any questions about this topic i do bring up for example, on the news, there's been a lot of high-profile cases about women being attacked and killed. And I've talked about them with my sons. There's been Andrew Tate featuring on the news a lot recently and been a lot said about how he has seems to have got, in some cases, a teenage boy fan base. And I've looked at him and spoken to my sons about this and said, you know, what do you think about this, Mel? Um, I was very glad to hear, you know, uh, certainly my, my younger son didn't have much of an opinion on it, really. But my older son said, no, I, I, I'm very concerned about what he says. I don't really like what he's, I, I don't like what he's saying. And it is good to see that there are some teenage boys who certainly have the intelligence to say, no, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, but I think it's quite a large one more than anything is consent, isn't it? Um, it, yeah, there's a lot of talk always, even in schools, about using contraception, not getting pregnant, not getting infections. Yeah. But consent is a massive one. I mean, I don't know how much detail you go into about consent. And even particularly for people that do not identify as heterosexual, I don't know if there's any discussions about other types of sexual orientation or, you know, yeah. I mean, seven years, a lot's changed. We've got a lot more, a lot more terminology that even I'm not completely yeah. up to date with, but oh. I don't know how far you go into it. To be honest, I don't really deal with other sexualities a lot. In XYZ, the one of Zoe's friends is gay and they just refer to, you know, they've got a boyfriend. But I don't go into that huge amount because I'll be really honest, it's not something I have personal experience of. I do, well, I do know some people who are gay, but I'll be dead honest, I didn't really want to go up and say, you're gay, can you tell me a little bit about that, please? You know, I just think sort of... They're just my friends, but they just happen to prefer the same gender. So what? You know, kind of, I don't treat them any different. And I certainly didn't want to go asking, you know, you tell me questions about what that's like. So what I do have is, say, Zoe has a friend who's gay, and that's just referred to a little bit, but it's not an enormous deal. In the follow-up book to XYZ, there is a minor character who's gay, and he's out with his boyfriend. And it's, I'll be dead honest, the way I deal with it is by not making it a big thing, by not referring to it. It's just... Alex refers to, he says, oh yeah, I'm going out with uh, Charlie and his fella later. And it's not a massive deal. It's like him and his boyfriend, that's totally normal. It's not, oh, hello, look at this. I've put a gay person in this book. I don't really want it to be that, that shoehorning some sort of people of other genders in. I just think if in time I feel I could write about, you know, sort of people of other genders or non-binary people, then I would do that. But I don't want to shoehorn them in. Just look at me, I'm being inclusive. I would only write about that if I really felt I'd gained sufficient experience. I did have someone, I will tell you, last year somebody got a bit annoyed with me in an internet forum over the tagline on XYZ, where the tagline is, a real girl, a real boy, real love. They said that could be construed as offensive to transgender people. And I said, that is not what is meant. I said, my use of that word there was just to suggest, no, I said before, they're not billionaires in mansions. I said, they're just a, a regular couple of kids. It wasn't related to gender in any way. It was just the fact that yeah. they're, they're not rich. They're Take not out of context, isn't it? And there's quite a lot of platforms, isn't there, these days? You know, books are yeah. just one of them. And sadly, I don't think enough young people read books anymore. I think they're moving to things like audio books and pods as well. So as long as they've got access in those places. But, you know, there's all the TV mediums, there's social media. So as long as they're having, I think, a range of information from a range of places that is healthy information and accurate information. I think you know you're just part of hopefully a lot of the good information that they can access. If you know what I mean. So yeah, I mean it's so difficult, but wording is wording, isn't it? And you, your intent was not to say what that person Absolutely thought. Not, no, so that's just... the main thing, I believe. And I mean, in terms of your other books, I think I read an interview where you said you don't like being referred to having written chiclet. Uh, um, no. And I wanted to ask why that was, but also what you're trying to do around the female characters in your books. Well, I mentioned before how Rescue Me was inspired. And also, I will say, the other thing that was at the back of my mind planning Rescue Me was I thought, right, this book is going to be completely clean. It was one year after XYZ and I'd, you know, had a bit of press for, oh, this book with tons and tons of sex in it and thought, right, I'm going to prove I don't need sex scenes to get people interested and to write a good book. This one is going to be clean as a whistle. And that was what I wanted to do. But the other thing that I was thinking, I used to like some of the chit books. You know, a bit of entertainment, 
you know, I spent all day as an English teacher analysing literature, you know, really delving into the heavy stuff. So I think, you know what, in my, my spare time, I'd like a bit of entertainment. But it was getting to the point where the women were just being presented as sort of shopping and Prosecco obsessed. And they always had the man who came in and rescued them and saved everything. And I thought, this is not for me. So I wanted to write a book featuring an independent woman, the woman in the story of Rescue Me. She is a 32-year-old single mum. And when she meets the love interest in the story, she's very guarded. She's thinking, look, I've, I've dealt with everything on my own this long. I'm not sure I really want to let anyone in. I'm, I, I just don't know. And she's got a best friend, you know, because I think best friend sidekicks are great characters. So I came up with a best friend sidekick who is um, a single girl who sort of a bit wilder than the main character. The main character admits to being quite timid and quite safe. And her best friend's a bit sort of, ah, go for it. What's the worst that can happen? A bit more devil maker. But they are, they're very strong women who are able to do things on their own terms. And so there's a love interest, but it's not really about the love story. It's about her recovery from tragedy and her ability to sort of find love again. But it's on her terms. And similarly, the best friend, a few people read Rescue Me and said, the best friend's got to have her own book, give her her own book. So I did. I wrote a book as a kind of spin-off from Rescue Me. And that one was called Sort Your Life Out, Laura Bishoprick. Laura is possibly one of my favourite characters. She's not like you did see Chicklet heroine, but she has been sacked from 19 jobs. Oh, wow. But, <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing. She's someone who she sort of floated from place to place. She never seems to settle on anything, but she's not stupid. And uh, she's, she's got a secret weapon, which you'd have to find out if you read the book. But she is presented as someone who needs to sort her life out. As the book title says, she's not stupid. I was very careful to still portray her as a very, very sharp woman. And you know, there's one or two situations where, you know, people do try to mess her around, but she outsmarts them. And I, I, that's the thing. I really wanted to show my women as being smart, capable women. But also, I really wanted to bring in some humour. Because, as I said, you know, at work, I dealt with all the heavy literature and I thought you know what I need something entertaining myself I wasn't really seeing much of it out there so that was when I turned to humor and that kind of led me to my latest book Sweet Like Candy where I thought could I write an out and out humorous book and thought why don't I do like a sitcom I watched a lot of sitcoms during lockdown by this point it was 2021 and I thought, why don't I write one of them where it won't have to be a continuous story? If you watch sitcoms, they come in little half hour episodes. There'll be a different story every week. And usually the characters, they've gone back to where they began at the end. You know, Take Only Fools and Horses, then one of the most famous sitcoms every week. Del and Rodney had a get rich quick scheme. It doesn't work. By the end of it, they've lost the money again. You know, they're back exactly where they were. And that happens in almost all sitcoms that there's rarely much in the way of progression. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do this where it's I'm going to write it as a litcom instead. So I'm going to do these little half hour stories which can be read on their own. They're not exactly well, they're kind of related in terms of they feature all the same characters, but they are separate little stories. And that's what I did. And I thought, you know what? What's funnier than my own life? <laughs> I've had people over the years say you should write down some of the things that have happened to you because they're sort of crazy and I took my inspiration from living with my children my husband um, he won't mind me telling you that when both our children were diagnosed my husband and I when we heard about these autism behaviors we both reacted with well that's normal we both do that and the paediatrician said to us, well, have you never considered that you have had autism yourself? And it wasn't picked up on because people didn't know very much about it back then. And we both sort of said, oh, God, yeah. And so throughout Sweet Like Candy, I do make reference to what it's like being a parent of kids with autism and what it's like to make that realisation about yourself. But I don't do it in a dreadful, heavy handed way. There's enough books out there where people are writing, you know, oh, my awful experience and the torture I went through because I didn't. Know. And you know what? That's actually it's very valid. I think it's valid for people to talk about their experience and the difficulties that they went through. That's valid. And people have tackled that in a serious way. But I think enough people have done that. I dealt with the humour. And I'll tell you, at the character I've created, she's got a dreadful name, which she hates. I had the family name of Kane in place and thought, what could be the most annoying name that this woman could have? And I thought, she's got to be called Candy. She's called Candy Kane. And she talks about how autism and, for example, some of the behaviours that the family exhibit because of autism, how it's coloured their lives. Just down to things like when she describes her husband, she says, you know, his black and white mentality, which 
it can either, it should in the right situation make him an absolute godsend, in the wrong one just makes him a flaming liability. <laughs> and it is it's very much about things that have happened with us in our lives. And maybe other people might read it and say, I don't agree with the way you portrayed autism. But as I do write a foreword at the front of the book where I say, I'm not a doctor, I'm not any kind of medical professional, I am a person who has lived with this, this is my experience, it might not be yours. And the way I get through it is by adding some humour to the situation yeah. without giving away everything that's in the book. There's one point I got um, as parents, and Candy and Chris, the two main characters, but it was something that did happen. We got called up to the school because of something my son had done and it turned out to just be a massive misunderstanding. And it was, it was just, even the school said, ah, right, well, now we know, you know. So I said, yes. But it was something that, to my son, made perfect sense. He wasn't doing anything wrong. And when we saw it, I thought, okay, I could see from now, as an outsider, I thought, I can see why people might have an issue with this. But as his mother, and as someone with also those same thought processes, I thought, I can also see exactly why he did that. <laughs> so there's lots of things in this where I do, I just talk about how autism colours our lives and also dyspraxia, which I also do mention because that's also an issue. Mm. I wouldn't classify myself as having dyspraxia, although, as I do say, because I write with the voice of Candy because she essentially she essentially is me. I don't agree with it. I don't, my views aren't entirely shared by her. She comes out with a few comments that I wouldn't necessarily come out with, but essentially it's me. But I wouldn't say I've got it, but don't ask me to catch a ball or we'll be here all night. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a sort of, I'm the most coordinated person in the world. I tried an aerobics class once and I just left after 15 minutes. I was like, I can't do this. You know, um, I'm just not that kind of person. But I do write about, for example, how dyspraxia, if you go out for a meal, mm. my kids will choose, for example, a burger because it could be picked up. You won't struggle with cutlery. I give them packed lunches because, again, you're not going to struggle with cutlery. They can just eat a sandwich and blend in because sandwiches can be picked up. So, yeah, um, whenever possible, if we're in any kind of eating out situation, I'll look for menu options that can be picked up and it's socially acceptable to eat with your hands because that is someone with dyspraxia will struggle with cutlery it does give them difficulties and I'll just look for things or no activities to do in the summer holidays when they were younger I'd look for things that wouldn't give them issues you know things like I encourage them to swim because it's the one sport where you're up to your neck in water no one can see you it doesn't matter if you're not moving right I know there are strokes but it, it doesn't matter if you're not doing them 100% correctly rather than other sports which has got balls you can't catch Things like javelins and items that you can't throw. You know, even running presents one of my sons with issues. I remember one time I sent him out to go and play and he came back five minutes later. Both his knees were cut, he'd fallen over because people with dyspraxia are more likely to, for example, fall over or bump into things. So, you know, all of those things come into the book, but I didn't want to make it a worthy textbook about the autism experience. They're a family who live with it. It shapes the way they are. It shapes the way they view things. But I also wanted to add in humour. And it mightn't be everybody's humour. Someone did say to me, he said, it's like Frankie Boyle wrote an episode of My Family. I took that as a massive compliment because I was really aiming for real savage humour. You know, some real, whoa, you didn't say that moments. You know, and the main character's views, it's, it's written in first person from the main character's view. And some of their views are a bit off colour, but then there's another character in it who comes in and he says he says one or two things which are a bit, you know, off colour, but she's thinking, whoa, you shouldn't really have said that. You know, but it's portrayed, it's, it is portrayed with the idea of showing sort of, he's, you know, he, he's a little bit sort of, he's a little bit out of order when he says those things. It is portrayed that way. I'm just interrupting this episode to say thank you for listening. I really hope you like it so far. I don't make money from creating this podcast currently and I've always wanted to keep it free, inclusive and accessible for everybody so you can hopefully benefit from it as much as I do. It takes many hours to record, edit and maintain the podcast and there are costs incurred through things like recording and editing equipment, maintaining it online and getting tech help where needed, which I do need sometimes because I'm not tech savvy. I know times are hard, but if you're in a position to donate the price of a coffee, or even lower than that, every little helps me to keep this podcast free and accessible for all. To donate, simply go to the link in our bio on this podcast service you're listening from, or go to the Linktree website and search for MindVoxPod. This link is also on the bio of our Instagram and Facebook pages, which are also found by searching MindVoxPod. For those not in a position to do any of this, which is absolutely fine, you can help by following and sharing the pod across social media, telling your friends about us and rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and please enjoy the rest of the episode.
like you said, it's, it's it's your experience or a part of it, and then you're turning it into fiction. But you know, they, you're inspired by your experience. Doesn't mean yeah. everyone with autism is completely different. You've met one autistic. You've met one autistic. Yeah. Even down to terminology, you know, that keeps changing. And you know, I, I always refer to people as autistic, not someone with autism. But years ago, it was the other way around. You know, the, things are constantly changing, and some, but some people will still stick with other terminology. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's what's okay for them. And you explaining how things have been in your family, there'll be lots of autistic families who've had a completely different experience. That doesn't make it wrong. It's just one person's experience. So I think it's completely valid. And I know that you said yourself that you identify with the autism assessments when you were doing it with your son. I mean, what happened yeah. during that assessment? Where were the flags for you that you thought, hang on a minute, that's me? Uh, yeah, it's. I'll be dead honest with you. It's, it's very hard to remember much about what went on during the process. But I'd say, the only thing I did remember is that we didn't seek out the process. It, it's odd because you hear about a lot of other parents who really have to fight and struggle to get an assessment and get the EHCP and all of that, where it was literally kind of handed to us on a plate. My son had his EHCP by the age of five. Within one week in mainstream school, they called us in and said, look, he shouldn't be with us. He really needs to be in a specific autism school setting. And we were surprised. We were, no, because we just thought, well, he's, he's not weird. He's just, he's just our son. You know, there's not, nothing strange about him. And there still isn't anything strange about him. He is who he is. But I, I just think behaviours such as, well, let's say the, the black or white, white mentality, which I, I've got to admit, I, I recognise it in myself these days. But I, I mean, I struggled a lot. I struggle a lot with it now, even even when I recognise it. And I think to yourself, you know, I think, I think no, you can't. You've got to kind of accept there's grey areas. And sometimes I think, well, but there isn't, there isn't. Just things like mood touching which is it is a strange one. I mean, for example, with me, I've always had a real issue with what I always refer to as sloth. Mayonnaise, tomato sauce, mustard. The minute that goes anywhere, even on a, on the side on a plate. One time I, um, I ordered a baked potato in a cafe and I asked for no side salad because that's another one. Salad makes my flesh crawl. It's not just, you know, we've all got foods we just don't like, but salad I'm really like, oh, and they put I'd asked for it not to be there but they'd still brought it with this salad and this coleslaw and I was like oh it you know it wasn't even just a case of oh, well I'll just carry on just leave that then don't eat that bit then in the end I asked for another plate and said look please could I just have a different plate and I'll, I'll put my food on that and leave that there and it really really gives me a really unpleasant feeling any of those sorts of things so that that was one thing, the idea of textures, which is also very much linked into like dyspraxia as well. You know, sort of uh, people with dyspraxia have difficulty chewing various textures. So it was things like that and just things about just getting disturbed if something was out of place. Disturbance routine. Um, I know when I was a teenager, my mum had a vase on the windowsill and one day she moved it. And why would that bother a 15 year old? But God, it did. I'd move it back. And my mum said, no, I've moved it. I want it over there. That's where I want it. And she put it back. And this, it became a, like a battle of wills of me and my mum moving this vase. And my mum carried on doing it. And I suppose in her mind, for a while, until she kind of twigged, she must have been thinking, what's it to wear where I have my vase? Why does she care? And I'd be like, why does my mum keep putting that vase back when she knows it's driving me nuts? And I remember that happening. And I, I don't know, at the time, I just remember thinking, why, why is my mum doing this with this vase? And it's only been later on that you learn more about us and you think that's that's an autism behaviour. That me getting really bothered by that vase being moved. Why on earth did a 15-year-old girl give a monkeys where this vase, where her mum's vase was? It really bothered me. Did you get much time... support when you found out that? You... So when your son was diagnosed, obviously, like you said, you guys, you're like, well, this is just how it's always been. What you want about that? You know, you, you know, this is a surprise. So I guess you didn't probably have to change much of the way you parented because it's all you had ever had and you probably yeah. had your own strategies um, but when you were looking at you and sort of thinking oh that's what we have you know did they give you support did you go and seek out more information about what autism is no and that, to be honest they didn't they didn't suggest that to us apart from that pediatrician saying well you know have you never considered that you you know probably an undiagnosed case yourself and that doesn't bother me much because the support my kids have received has been brilliant again you hear parents say it's a problem. Uh, we did have early on, before we had the full diagnosis, we had a couple of issues uh, with my older son where things he did were mistaken for misbehaviour. We had a couple of issues with that. But other than that, once there was the official diagnosis in place, once it was known, they're both in secondary school now. And I have to say, I, his secondary school have been excellent. They've been brilliant. Again, there was that time we were called up about the incident that I referred to in the book. It was a misunderstanding. And even then, once they knew, they were like, ah, oh, you know, even they said we should have realised that. 
people are very critical of the education system. Maybe I have just been incredibly lucky, but my sons have had some wonderful teachers who really, really understood and been helpful. It's been fantastic. We've had a great experience. So it hasn't bothered me in the slightest that mm. we weren't offered support. I say I made the choice to not go and seek diagnosis because the waiting list is years long. Mm. And the NHS, you know, you've only got to turn the telly on to see that the NHS is massively overstretched. And I just thought, what would it benefit me to have that diagnosis? For what employer? I don't have an employer. Yeah. I um, When I work as a teacher, I do that these days. I work part time on a freelance basis. And the rest of the time I am writing and working for myself as an author. So I think who would it benefit me to have that diagnosis? Nobody. The way it benefits me now is that when I do come across a situation that winds me up or is giving me some tension, I think, you know, why now? Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly with my husband, he won't mind me telling you about this. It's really, really evident with him very often. There'll be something that will, uh, no, I said he's a real black and white thinker. There's things where if it's not going the way it should, it's something that will really get him very wound up, very bothered and we know and we've often said you know we said it's a really good job we found each other as a lot of people do find each other because they found someone who understands it you know we live together and for example our home isn't a show home but it's a home that it's positioned in the way that works for us everything's geared towards us and the way we live our lives and other people it maybe wouldn't like it but this is how this is how our lives work and this is what works for us and I, I just think for both of us recognizing it in ourselves and when my husband does get wound up I'll say look come on we should see what's happening here let's let's calm it down step away from it for a bit and let's not get wound up um, yeah I was going to ask like have you yeah. found over the years strategies for you for your partner for your sons over things like that some of the traits where things can get really difficult have you found any really handy ways of trying to get out of, of things like the emotional dysregulation that can happen? Yeah, so well, let me say, my husband and I can see you starting to get stressed. I will say, come on, recognise this, see what's happening, you know, just let calm it down. I said, and because he's very much you saw there, you know, he's an IT manager, he's a solutions man. I'll say, what practically can be done here rather than get wild up? Because when he really when it really starts to bother him, he kind of loses sight of the solution. And that is where I kind of have to step in and say, come on, let's try to be logical here. Where I'm strange enough, obviously I'm more of a, I'm a writer, more of a creative person, but when when I can see him getting a bit wound up, that's when I need to kind of step up and become the logical one. That's how we work together. As far as my kids go, I find telling them in advance as much as we can about what's going to happen. If a change is coming up, I really try to prepare them for these things. Just saying, right, well, look, next week, this is going to be happening and it will be like this and so you're going to need to do this and I find that yeah preparing them mentally as much as I can my older son is doing his GCSEs at the moment and he has made the choice to not stay on at that school he's made a choice to go to a local college instead so I've been you know talking him through that saying well this is how it's going to be different you're going to be doing this you're going to be doing that so making sure that it's not an enormous shock to him when it does happen yeah, because there's a lot of preparation, isn't it? And I think that was my other question. Now that they're teenagers, and, and even hormones can increase a lot of traits um, or bring you some new ones that you never had when you were really young. And I think because of the age they are, they're very conscious now of who they are, growing their identity, and you've got peer pressure and you know, other kids that can be really quite mean if they pick out that you're yep. different. Have you had any challenges or have they had any challenges that you've had to support them through since being teenagers with this? Yeah, we have had a couple of issues, but again, the school, I've got to say, I've been very good about that. There was a bit of an issue with my uh, younger son, because as I said, he didn't go to a mainstream primary school. He'd been in a primary school environment where everybody had autism. And so the lessons were geared towards it, that entire environment was geared towards it. But we did decide that we thought we wanted him to go to a mainstream uh, secondary because we thought we did have the option to have him go to a SEN secondary but we thought is it a good idea for him to be educated till the age of 18 where in a world place where everyone's like him then he comes out to the world where not everyone's like him is that a good idea and we thought you know what maybe it's best to try and acclimatize so he uh, goes to a mainstream secondary he has support the school were well aware of his ehcp and you know the outlines thereof and he has teaching assistance with him and obviously all the teachers know who he is on the radar and they're very good one we 
there were one or two instances of kids treating them slightly differently, but when we mentioned that to school, they really did deal with it very well. Whenever I speak to him, he seems happy, he seems to have settled in, and I think it was the right choice to have done for him. But yeah, there, there have been one or two moments, yeah. Yeah, and I think as a parent, it's that worry of they're growing up and then oh. it gets to that point where I can't protect them anymore. Oh. And, and whilst <laughs> things are coming, you know, whilst we're talking about autism and ADHD and things yeah. like this in, in society a lot more now, there's still a huge stigma um, for both of them in different ways. And it's that fear of I'm going to be letting them go and into this world that's still really behind of a lot of this stuff. And it's that worry of how they're going to take it when people you know when adults in their workplace aren't necessarily going to be so nice like I mean do you have fears about things like that enormous fears I mean again in the book I she says some people talk about helicopter parenting she said well an autism parent is a heat seeking missile you and you know you are aren't you and it's and I thought I've got to back off I've got to let them start doing their own things but I can only hope that by the time they enter the workplace I mean understanding is getting better and these days almost everybody does know somebody who has autism it's not the rare thing it would have been once upon a time so I think understanding is getting better. So I'm hoping, you know, things will improve in the future. I mean, certainly towards the end of my time as a full-time employed teacher, I did speak to my head of department, my kind of immediate boss. And I said, giving me a whole load of information in one go stresses me out enormously. And she agreed that I could skip the morning briefing. And she emailed it to emailed the information to me for me to kind of read and take in a little bit more slowly. Because you used to go to the morning briefing and the be like this is happening this is happening this and i come i'll go um and then that would often set me off on a dreadful path of the day because i was just freaked out i was like oh my god that was it had been too much to take in at one time it would set off panic attacks occasionally so we Mm. agreed in the end she said you don't don't be in the room and i'll tell you it later and i think those sort of strategies are being employed a little bit more in the workplace hopefully by the time my sons get to the workplace things will be better and it's really good that you you don't have a formal diagnosis, but that workplace is still catering to your self-diagnosis because a lot of places don't. And I think I wanted to ask as someone that self-diagnosed and identifies that way, which is completely valid in my opinion, especially when, you know, you have diagnosed ch- children, you, you've gone through that process, you've identified with yourself throughout that. You've not just watched one TikTok and gone, oh, yes, I must be autistic. You've, you've really looked into it over the years and seen it in your, and looked back into your own life and seen the same similar things, you know. But self-diagnosis, from my opinion, from what I've seen, there's still a really bad stigma with that. I mean, I don't know. I was going to ask what your perception has been when you have told people that you identify that way. Have you come across any challenges? Yeah, well, recently, yes, I did come across someone who just said, well, no, if you don't have a diagnosis, you shouldn't be talking about it, which was disappointing to hear. But other than that, I think people have, the only time I've spoken about it with people, I don't just kind of come out with it out of the blue. The only time I've mentioned it has been with people who have already known me for a while. For example, they may have heard me speak about my own children and, you know, what I've done with them. And I would imagine most of them thinking, yeah, I'm not that surprised to hear you say that. So, for example, I've never had someone say, well, why haven't you gone and got a diagnosis? Or I've never had anyone outright challenge me and say, well, sort of, you know, well, if you don't haven't been diagnosed, how do you know you are? I've never had someone say that to me face. But, you know, recently I have come across people who have said, well, if you don't have a diagnosis, you shouldn't be commenting on it, which I don't really feel. It's not something I agree with. As you know, the analogy I often use is why go to the opticians for an eye test to find out you've got brown eyes. That's if a good analogy. Yeah, if it's something you just think, you know what, I can see this is happening. Mm. I don't need someone else to tell me I am doing these things. Yeah. And as I said, in, it may benefit some adults to get the diagnosis. For example, in a workplace, if you mm. had a workplace where they were being inflexible, if a diagnosis may mean you could take that to human resources and say, look, I need this. And as an employer, you really have a duty of care to provide or make some kind of adaption, then maybe that would be worth doing. And I can or you know, if someone wants to get the diagnosis, that's absolutely fine. But right now, when it takes such a, not, a long time, and as I said, I don't see any personal benefit for me. I it's just absolutely think it's absolutely fine, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't see that it is damaging anyone else for me to realise yeah. this for myself. I'm not telling no. anyone else how to think. No, I'm not exactly. telling anyone else how they should feel. I'm just saying this is how I feel and this is how I think. And if it benefits me to recognise these things in myself, then I think that's it. Certainly helped me that these days when I find a challenge, I think 
I know why this is. And yeah. it just, it arms me a little bit better to cope with it. Yeah. I was going to ask as well, when you did work that out, hang on, this is also me. Did you go through any sort of grieving process of thinking, God, yeah. if only I'd known years ago, like how yes. did you get yourself through that? Because oh, yeah. a lot of people um, listening are still in that grieving process. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see how it's been for you. Yeah, you do. I look back at my teenage years and my 20s and think, how different could things have been if I hadn't always been plagued with, you know, the kind of the doubt, the worry, the feeling that I just didn't know. I didn't know what was wrong. And I thought you knew something was wrong, but you, or at least you just didn't know what was going on. You felt you didn't belong all the time. I remember writing a poem. I said I wrote poems. I wrote one called Outside the Circle when I was about 14. I haven't got it anymore, but I said, I just remember that phrase, Outside the Circle. Um, that, I couldn't, it was, it was about how I felt as a teenager that I just didn't feel like I belonged. And, you know, I said I haven't got the poem anymore, but that phrase, and I thought, yeah, and I just wonder how different things might have been. Because one thing I will say, you know, for example, if people want to describe themselves as autistic, that's their choice. I'm a person with autism myself, because I just think it's what I have, it's not what I am. You know, that's... That's kind of how I feel. And one thing I say via the book, there's a bit where I address in the book where I say it's not a superpower, but then her son does something quite astonishing and then she says, all right, maybe bits of it are like a superpower then. <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, yeah, it's um, like bits and bits. So some of it's useful, some of it, yeah, but then other it's, times um, it's not. Well, it's the context, it's, isn't uh, it? I've got to admit, I don't really subscribe to the autism as a superpower point of view because it's something that has made my life quite difficult and has presented me some some of sons of some obstacles so i'm not always very keen on this it's a superpower point of view but yeah. on the other hand i can see why some people think it because it can give you an extraordinary drive mm. which yeah, i guess attention is made... to detail and as yeah, a writer I, that's quite yeah, handy I guess, <laughs> yeah i guess that's what people mean it can give yeah. you an extraordinary drive to be able to do things i said my husband is a solutions man and he can find you no know, if i happen to say Oh, what was the name of that TV program that was on in 2003? And it was only on for six weeks in April. Bang! Within two mm. minutes, he will say, "I can tell you what that was. Who started it?" Uh, mm. No, that's, exactly. that's really yeah. interesting. It's, a, it's, it's just, I mean, it's the brain. The brain is, is incredible with with how it can work with these different wirings, essentially. As someone that is autistic yourself, then did your traits ever clash? at any point with your own children's like how do you manage if they have something that's completely different you know you have things a certain way but they do it completely opposite like how do you manage when two traits clash it sounds awful sort of as a parent to some extent i'd say i kind of concede which sounds a bit like oh don't let a kid have their own way and all that sort of bad parent but when i say i concede to the way they're doing it is i think i am meaning that from well i understand that they're not misbehaving or being awkward it's just this is the way they view it. As far as they're concerned, that is the way it ought to be done. And obviously, provided it's not something that's going to cause danger or something like that, you know, I would say, right, I can see that doing it that way is the thing that makes sense to them. And that's something then you think I'm willing to put their well-being before mine and let them do it their way. As I said, obviously, right, it's not dangerous or illegal or, you know, for example, when, you know, when we go out for a meal, my kids are never, you know, genuinely, they've never made noise. They've never, I, I don't think they've ever inconvenienced other people. I've certainly gone out for a meal and been inconvenienced by other kids running around and screaming their heads off and stuff like that. But my kids don't do that. You know, as, as far as what they're doing isn't going to cause inconvenience to anyone else or cause any danger to themselves. I will concede even if I can see I'll take it bothering me before mm. it bothers them this, it's I having guess, that understanding it. isn't it you've got the understanding of where it comes from and why yeah. they have the decisions they've got and why you have yours and I guess going back to the grief then you said you wrote poetry back then that kind of showed you you were struggling back then have you found ways to accept it now and kind of get through that so you're not constantly going oh what could have been you know did you go through a yeah. process of dealing with it yeah, I said I did, I had that. And um, I mean, again, coming back to the poetry, there was a poem I wrote based around sort of the experience of me somewhere. I, I called it, he's done quite well though, hasn't he? And it came from a point when he was still at mainstream school because he was there for about one term till they found him a place, a, a specialist environment. And um, he went to a birthday party at one of his classmates. And after a while, the noise was really getting to him. He came to me with his hands over his ears and I said, okay, and I said to the mum, I said, look, I think maybe I best take him home. She said, oh, well, he's done quite well, though, hasn't he? And at that point, I thought, whoa, I thought, you obviously can all just see that my kid is different. I don't, I didn't introduce him, I didn't tell anyone about it. I was, you know, it wasn't known that he wasn't going to be staying at school. So I thought, whoa, you can all, you all view my kid as the special kid then, do you? And then I considered, I thought, well, look at all the positive, brilliant things about him. 
and I know that poem ends with the line, but he's, but he's still him, if not what we have planned. He was always doing well. I just didn't understand. That's really um, lovely. I love that. that yeah, that, well, that was the end line. I can't remember the whole poem, but I yeah. just remember that end line. And, yeah. that and I thought it is. It's just, he is doing, he's always been doing well. And hmm. I flipped that thing where I thought, well, you obviously see him as being a bit different, but I'm thinking, no, yeah. well, all right, maybe he is, but he's still brilliant. Exactly. Well, thank you for coming and being so open about all of this. I think it's been really lovely to to see, you know, a whole autistic family and, and the life you've been through, but also the books that you write. So I'm really helpful for girls, women, um, autistic people, if they want to have a, you know, if they stay into that sort of humour and looking at that side of it, which I think is perfect. It's not all dark and dreary. Um, we need to be able to laugh at ourselves, whoever we are, and whatever we, you know, conditions we might have or whatever. So I love that. And I, and I really think that the books for teenagers sound brilliant and, and really things that we need to be looking at. So if people want to find you, because you do use your own name, but also yes. another name for different books. So what yes. what names do you go by with your writing? OK, right. Well, the books aimed at the older teens, although many adults have enjoyed them as well, that do deal with sex and relationships. They are published under the name Jess Molyneux. And so the first book in that series is called X. Y, Z. And there's a comma between the Y and the Z. That's important if you're trying to find it on Amazon. So yeah, X, Y, Z. And follow-up book is called SE6 after the London postcode. Although people commented to me afterwards, he went, oh, very clever, that SE6, sex. And it wasn't. That was genuinely unintentional. That was from my research. I thought, right, what postcode of London would this likely to be taken place in you know and it said it was it was uh, southeast <laughs> and, but people said oh that's very clever and it wasn't that was genuine coincidence that so yeah those are my books under the name Jess Molyneux the real sex relationship ones um my ones in which I aim to portray women positively using my real name Sue Bordley there's Rescue Me and Sort Your Life Out Laura Bishopric and finally my litcom because it's not a novel it's seven separate episodes six in the Christmas special that's called Sweet Like Candy and I will put links to all of them, especially if they're on Amazon oh, even easier. You. I'll put them all directly on there so people can click and hopefully go straight to them so they haven't got a search for them. And obviously I'll also put links to your social media because I think you're on Instagram, aren't you? I've seen you. I am. I'm on Instagram. I joined TikTok last week. I went over <laughs> to the dark side. Oh, dear. Oh, it's a very strange <laughs> may not come place. out. <laughs> oh, it's an education, I'll tell you that. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a oh, really, I think these are things that we need brilliant. to talk more about. And I think you've, you've been great at giving us some really good perceptions of things. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you've liked this episode, please help us out by following or liking the podcast, rating it or leaving us a review as this really helps us to reach more people that will benefit from hearing it. To help the pod remain free to access, please consider donating the price of a coffee if you're able to, which can be done via our link tree with the username MindVoxPod. This link can be found in the show notes of this episode and the bio on our Instagram and Facebook by also searching MindVoxPod. If you have ideas about topics to cover on future episodes, have any questions about the pod, or you want to be interviewed for it, please get in touch on socials or email us on mindvoxpod at gmail.com.